Let's bow in prayer and ask the Lord to open our heart before we look into His Word and, and see what He has for us tonight. Father, thank You that You reign. You reign throughout the earth. Father, You reign where even where Your people may be suffering. And we want to pray right now, Father, for Christian believers in different parts of the world. We pray for the believers in Eritrea, Father, right now. We pray for the believers in Ethiopia. We pray for believers in Pakistan, in India, in the states of Orissa and Rajasthan and other places, Father, where sometimes it's difficult to really see that you reign. Lord, but we pray that your reign might be felt by our brothers and sisters right now who are paying a price because of their faith in you. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to know how you want us to respond when we feel threatened and we feel our brothers and sisters around the world threatened. Help us to understand exactly how you want us to respond. From your word tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we have seen over our last few days, it's an exciting time to be part of God's Great Commission movement. On Monday evening, we looked into in detail some of the expansion and growth of the Christian church around the world, as well as some of the tasks still to be done. Uh, one of the things we didn't look at in detail Monday night was some of those places where the gospel has been long resisted that have now not only opened up to the gospel, but have become some of the fastest growing churches in all of church history. Take, for example, the little country of Nepal, that little country tucked in between India and Tibet, China. Back in 1960, it was illegal to be a Christian and live in Nepal. As far as anyone knew, there were only 25 Nepalese believers anywhere in the world, 1960. But over the 50 years since 1960, the gospel has opened into Nepal. Hospitals along the Indian-Nepalese border were the start as Nepalese people crossed the border, had their illnesses treated in these Christian hospitals, heard the gospel, came to Christ and went back and carried the gospel back into Nepal. Other Nepalese people abroad coming to Christ and coming back into the country. Uh, a, a slight opening of the door in Nepal as some Christian uh, workers were able to come in and share the gospel within it. And, and today, estimates are as many as half a million Nepalese believers, followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, a few years ago, I heard Dr. David Howard, who was at that time president of the World Evangelical Alliance, talking about a recent trip he had made to Nepal this country where only a couple of decades before this there were no Christians. And Dr. Howard, one of the leaders of world evangelicalism, was traveling with some others up into the hill country, the very foothills of the Himalayas. And they stopped their vehicles to get out and stretch their legs a bit. And he walked over and he saw a little Nepalese farm girl, a little peasant girl off in the fields, and she was singing a song. So with the translator, he walked across the fields over to where she was singing and and when she finished her song, he had his translator translate and said to her, that was beautiful. Tell me about what that song was that you were singing. And this little Nepalese peasant girl turns to one of the leaders of world evangelicalism and said, my song was about walking the Jesus way. Do you walk the Jesus way? In Nepal, a country long closed to the gospel, or Mongolia, a country where in 1989 there were only four known Mongolian believers in the entire country. Today, estimates are somewhere between 40 and 50,000 Mongolian believers. And the Mongol church is strategizing on how to send Mongolian missionaries into North Korea, one of the most closed countries in the world. It's clearly a time where God has been at work opening up countries long closed to the gospel. 
But as we've also noted, it's one of the most challenging times in Christian faith. Because where the gospel is being resisted today, and that's just about everywhere in the world, it's being resisted with as much hatred and ferocity as any time in the world. Uh, We talked Monday night about the tremendous church growth in China, and the church is growing in China. But church is also suffering in many parts of China. Just a few years ago, one Chinese government official was quoted as saying that the government policy was still, quote, to strangle the baby in the manger, unquote, referring to Christian faith in China. And in many parts of the country, unregistered church leaders are still imprisoned and taken to re-education through labor camps when they share their faith and when they practice their faith outside of the official registered churches. Dr. Sugdeo shared with us just a few moments ago about the, the challenge of militant Hinduism, which he mentioned as being as, as serious as militant Islam in many parts of the world. Uh, just in the last few months, he didn't give any specific examples. He saved some of those for me to give you. But just in the last few months, for example, just a month ago, a pastor, Christ, a Christian pastor, was visiting his daughter in the state of Rajasthan. And when it became known in the village that there was a pastor there, Uh, Several people came in and asked the pastor to pray for healing for them. Uh, One said, would you come next door and pray for my daughter? And he went and he was praying over the the little girl. And several others came in and said, Pastor, could you pray for me? I'm presuming these people were Hindus because this was largely a Hindu village. Well, word got out that the pastor was praying for healing for some Hindus. And ten extremist Hindu thugs burst into the room, grabbed the pastor, dragged him outside of the village, ripped off all his clothing and beat him with clubs until he was unconscious, claiming they were doing this because, quote, he was trying to force conversions on people, which is illegal in India. It's illegal to be a Christian and it's legal to witness. It's illegal to force conversions. They said, oh, we're only enforcing these conversions. No charges were brought against these thugs. It was presumed that they were simply honoring Hindu areas. Uh, in another part of the uh, country, in Orissa State, a small tribal group of people called the, Hoy, the Koya, who are believers largely, have been attacked 15 times by Hindu extremist thugs in the last three months, uh, each time going up, beating them with clubs, and claiming they're trying to bring these people back to Hinduism, a people that was never officially Hindu. Attacks in Hindu parts of the world. Then there's the little country of Eritrea. How many of you have even heard of Eritrea? Good, good for you. You know your world geography. Eritrea used to be a part of Ethiopia. It's a country that lines the Red Sea between Ethiopia, let's see, from your perspective, Ethiopia, Sudan, the Red Sea, there's Eritrea along the coast. Today, tonight, as we speak, 3,000 Christian believers are being held in shipping containers, hot, sweltering shipping containers, like the ones you see down here on the dock in Nassau. They, they cram them in, sometimes as many as over a hundred in one of those little containers. And they give them one bucket to take care of their toilet needs, and they throw in a few loaves of bread for all those that are in there every day. It comes out to just a few slices of bread a day, give them hardly any water. Why are they there? Because they're Christians. Um, the government there is not Muslim, it's not Marxist, it's just ruled by an egocentric dictator who can't stand for anyone to have a higher allegiance than himself. So he finds any evangelical Christians, he throws them into their shipping containers. Uh, And then, of course, there's the Muslim parts of the world. And Dr. Sudeo mentioned to us what's been happening in Ethiopia. Just these last couple weeks, there have been uh, repeated attacks in western Ethiopia around the town of Jimma. 
he mentioned up to 10,000 believers now homeless. 58, I heard uh, possibly over 60 churches that have been burned to the ground. Many of those are the church group that SIM, Marshes and my former mission, helped to plant. And those are brothers and sisters in Christ. Now they're homeless. Um, as far as anyone knows, uh, there were no deaths from that, but the burnings of the churches and, and homes and believers now homeless. But, it, of course, uh, mission work in Muslim countries can get violent. A few years ago, you probably heard about the attack in Turkey. Five Muslim young men came into a Christian publishing house and said they were interested in faith in Christ. Uh, there was one German evangelical missionary and two Turkish believers, and they came with these young men and started sharing Christ with them. And once they started sharing about, these, about the Lord, these men showed their true color. They jumped up, they tied up the three believers, um, and then they began to torture them with long, slow, excruciating torture. And they finally ended by slitting the throats of these three brothers in Christ who went to be with the Lord. The attacks against Christian faith around the world are intense. But you know, sometimes we even feel those attacks closer to home, don't we? Because in even places that consider themselves for many years Christian countries, like the United States or the Bahamas, we feel increasingly marginalized even within our own cultures. We, we sense um, the growing society around us beginning to look upon us with disapproval. In the U.S., it's primarily because of the gay marriage issue. Christians speaking up against that are roundly condemned as bigots these days. And increasingly, it's difficult to express the fact that homosexual actions are condemned in Scripture as wrong. And homosexual marriage can possibly have, can have no possible base in, in Scripture or in, in history or in culture or anything else. People say that you're just a bigot if you say that. And from pastorally, I understand that that's even encroaching here in the Bahamas. Um, many of you, uh, as I know many of my friends and, and uh, colleagues in the States, uh, have people who feel that if we are a Christian, at best, we're a little bit deluded, and at worst, we're outright dangerous. Um, not long ago, the uh, TV commentator Rosie O'Donnell on ABC's program The View was quoted as saying, Radical Christianity is just as threatening as radical Islam in America. And we are the ones that she was calling radical Christians. Now, whether it's over there, when you hear about Christians suffering for their faith, or closer to home, when you feel the squeeze coming within our own culture as people are hostile to us because we are Christians, and the media and everyone else makes us feel more and more like we are the ones who are the enemy within our own culture. More and more, we, we begin to feel embattled. How do you respond to that? How, how do you feel when that goes on? Well, if you're like me, you have one of two responses. Sometimes I go into my defensive posture. Okay, you know the defensive posture. It's the posture that says, you know, we need to build the walls a little higher. We need to pull up the drawbridge. Just please leave me and my church alone. Allow us to practice our Christian faith. Allow us to practice our Christian values in society. Please don't criticize me. Please don't attack me. And please don't attack my brothers and sisters. Just leave us alone. That may be one thought that you have. Kind of a defensive posture. But at other times, I go into more of an offensive posture. 
I think in terms of military victories abroad and judicial and political victories here at home. I think of seeing unbelievers embarrassed. I see them, uh, I dream of seeing them thrown out of power locally. And I dream of seeing my Christian brothers and sisters vindicated abroad. Possibly even by seeing the unbelievers finally get their due reward and enter quickly into eternity. Defensive, offensive. That's how I tend to respond. How does God respond? How does God respond to the people who don't like us and threaten us because we are Christians? Here and there. It's an important question. Because in missions, in this new era of missions, we see increasing hostility. That's part of the era of missions in the 21st century that we enter into. It's an increasingly hostile world, close at hand and far away. We need to know, how does God respond to those who threaten us? If you have your Bibles tonight, please take them and open them to Psalm 87. One of the most challenging and difficult psalms to understand, and yet one that when we do understand it, is extraordinarily powerful because it speaks right to us today as threatened followers of our God who reigns. Psalm 87. This is called a song of Zion, a song that celebrates Jerusalem, a song that celebrates being God's people in God's place. And that's how the first stanza begins. There's two stanzas and a final chorus. The first stanza celebrates how good it is to be one of God's people in God's place. I'm reading again from the NIV. He has set his foundation on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are said of you, O city of God. Selah. That's what Pastor Lee says at the end of his radio program. Selah. Stop and think about that. Think about how good it is to be one of God's people in God's place. The first words in the original language of the psalm are, His establishment. Zion. It's like there's a flashing lighted sign over Jerusalem that says, God's place, God's place, the author says. God has established himself there and he loves it. It's his special place, especially, verse 2, the gates of Zion. The gates of Zion where the people gather. And God loves to be there because that's where all of his people are. He loves the gates because he's there with his people was also the most vulnerable part of the city, its city gates. So God's presence there gives security to his people. So God's people could say, it's glorious, glorious things are said of you, Zion, because God is there. Our God is there, and it's wonderful to be in God's place with God himself and God's people. He gives us security, he gives us comfort, he gives us his own presence. Oh, city of God, glorious things are said of you. And boy, can we relate to that? Isn't it marvelous to be here at Calvary Bible Church? Don't you love coming in here on Sunday mornings and singing praise choruses, enjoying Anton as he leads us in marvelous worship, being together with God's people, our kind of people, hearing great Bible teaching, you go away thinking, that was good. It's good to be in God's place. It's so good to be with God's people. I love fellowshipping with God's people. I love worshiping God in God's place. Or maybe gathering in a home with a small group of believers. Maybe a regular Bible study or a regular prayer group. Intimate brothers and sisters that you can pour out your problems with and share. And you're feeling connected. 
with the psalmist, with ancient Israel, we can say, oh, it's so glorious to be in God's place with God's people. Selah. Think about it. Enjoy it. But then the psalmist, verse 4, begins his second stanza, stanza 2, when he talks about another group of people who are in God's place. I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me. Philistia too and Tyre along with Cush and will say, this one was born in Zion. Indeed of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her and the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples. This one was born in Zion. Siva. Stop and think about that for a while. From Jerusalem, the camera widens out in verse 4 to a panorama of countries in the ancient world. Only these countries listed there in verse 4 are not just any countries. Every one of these countries was in some sense a threat to ancient Israel. Rahab is a nickname for Egypt, the ancient persecutor, the ancient enslaver, the country that Israel had every reason to hate because they had enslaved them. Babylon. That was the new bully on the block. Just over the horizon, threatening to swoop down and cause all kinds of havoc and trouble. Philistia. Boy, we know about the Philistines, don't we? A constant thorn in Israel's side. Always raiding, always attacking, always causing problems. Tyre, up north. Not a military threat, but an economic threat. These were the Phoenicians, shrewd merchants, always ready to rob you blind. Also a religious threat. The exporter of wicked Baal worship to Israel. And finally, Cush. The headwaters of the Nile, south of Egypt, far away and exotic, but when they appear in ancient scripture, they often appear as the enemy, as in Second Chronicles 16, where the Cushites sweep down on Judah and cause all kinds of problems. Every one of these people is a threat to ancient Israel. And what does God say about them? Verse 4, I will record them as those who acknowledge me or know me. That word for know and acknowledge is used of intimate knowledge that God has with his people. Over in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, it was used to describe this exclusive knowledge God had of Israel, a special covenant knowledge. It means God's going to know these people intimately. More than that, verses 4, 5, and 6, three times it says God's going to say or write this one is born in Zion. What's that all about? Well, the picture is God himself coming up to the temple mound in Jerusalem. And as Yahweh enters the temple mound, he looks around and he says, ah, there's an Egyptian. There's a Philistine. There's a Babylonian. Right here, in my place, in my temple, right here in Jerusalem. This is marvelous. This is wonderful to have these people gathered in my place. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give each one of these their own birth certificate that says, you are native-born citizens of Zion. Here you go, Egyptian. Now, you are a native-born citizen of my place. Here you go, Egyptian. Now, you are a native-born citizen of my people. And God goes around to all of these people, and he registers them as born in Zion. These threats to ancient Israel are going to be given the privileges, the position of being right there. Native-born citizens of Zion. 
And finally, in verse 7, there is a final chorus. As the song fades out, as they make music, they will sing, all of my fountains or my springs or my source of life is in you. But the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Philistines, they're gathered around God himself. They're taking spring water and they're lifting it up and they're singing and they're dancing. All of these people are partying with God. Now, how do you think those ancient Israelites felt about this part of Psalm 87? How do you think those people felt maybe who had had a family member killed by a Philistine raiding party? Or who had been uh, swindled by a Phoenician merchant? Or perhaps could still remember the slavery back in Egypt and knew the stories? I imagine when it came time in the regular Israeli rotation of hymns to sing Psalm 87, the Anton of ancient Israel probably stood up and said, All right, folks, this morning we're going to sing Psalm 87. Let's all stand and sing stanza one only of Psalm 87. Stanza two was a little bit uncomfortable. It was not one they wanted to think about. But you see, God wrote Psalm 87 because he had a message for ancient Israel. It was to remind them of why they were his chosen people in the first place. To remind them way back in Genesis 12 that God had called them out to be a blessing to the nations. To remind them of Exodus 19 that he had set them apart to be a priestly nation. To be mediators of himself and his revelation to the nations. To remind them, as he said in Psalm 67, which we read earlier this week, that he blessed them that they in turn might be a blessing to the nations. To remind them that they were his chosen people because he wanted to show himself off to the nations and attract them and bring them to himself. See, Israel forgot why he had made them his special people. So God had to remind them, Israel, you're my special people for a purpose because I want the nations to come to me. In fact, I want to party with them through all eternity. And Israel, I want you to be the ones to invite them to the party. Now, this psalm is not only a picture of something that's going to happen in the last days. I think it's a reminder to us as people today that we have been given the same responsibility because it shows us the heart of God. You see, God calls his people apart, whether Old Testament Israel or New Testament church. He calls us apart and he blesses us because he wants us to be a blessing to the nations. And this psalm reminds us of his heart. His heart is that he wants to attract those people, even the ones who are a threat to us. He wants to attract them to himself. And he wants to enjoy them for all eternity. So who are the Philistines and the Babylonians and the Egyptians in your life? Who are the people who don't like you very much because you're a Christian? Maybe you don't like them because they don't like you. Maybe it's an individual. Maybe it's, it's a group of people who have threatened you sometime in the past or hurt you. Maybe it's a particular ethnic group that you would rather not associate with. Maybe some immigrant groups. Maybe others who are around who in some way feel like they are a threat to you or your society. You would rather them just keep your distance. God says, yeah, maybe those people threaten you, but you know what? I want to party with them. Maybe it's people like the gay marriage crowds, which are in the States becoming more and more vocal, and even here in the Bahamas. Those that threaten our way of life and threaten the sanctity of Christian marriage. 
Maybe it's those a little further away who hurt our Christian brothers and sisters, Hindu or Islamic or Marxist or otherwise extremists in other countries. People we really would like to go on the offensive against. God says, okay, yeah. But you know what my top, my top dealing with them is? I want to party with them for all eternity. See, that's the heart of God. Now, please don't misunderstand me. It's certainly right for believers to oppose ungodly actions, to stand for them in our society, wherever we see them, to stand against them, to stand for Christian values. It's certainly right for us to protect ourselves and our families. It's certainly right for us to want to have a pure and holy church and to make that holiness impact society. We need to work for those things. We need to vote for those things. Those things are very, very important. I'm not denying that in the least. But God wants to make sure we understand the core of his heart. The very center. And the very center of his heart says, I don't want you to retreat and insulate yourselves, Christians. Just protect us. Nor do I want you to work to see others harmed or hurt or even humiliated or embarrassed. What I really want you to see, most of all, your priority, I want you to invite them to the party. I want you to know my heart, God says. My heart is that they would come to my grand eternal salvation party. That's my heart. And that needs to be at the heart, at the beginning of all of our response. When we hear about the threat of Islam, which is there. When we hear about the threat of Hinduism. Yes, it's there. Yes, we want to be aware of it. We don't want to be seduced into thinking Islam or any of these other groups are somehow benign. But we want to remember that at the very heart of God's response and our response should be that we want to see those people as God wants to see them, in his grand eternal party. How do we do that? Let me suggest two steps. First of all, we have to adopt God's attitude. We have to adopt his attitude of not seeing these enemies as them against us, but rather seeing them as potential us. Seeing them as potential partiers. When we look at those out there, whether it's Al-Qaeda on the Islamic front or Hindu extremists or somebody very close to home that is threatening us in our lifestyle, say yes, what they're saying is absolutely wicked. But you know, when I see them, I want to see an individual. An individual who right now embraces the religion of Islam or right now embraces the religion of, of Hinduism or right now is active in a homosexual lifestyle and recognize that's an individual that God wants to redeem and bring to himself. That's an individual that God wants to party with for all eternity. I want to see him and her as a potential partier. A few years ago, I had a chance to hear Sina Maurice, who was pastor of the largest evangelical church in Egypt, a Presbyterian church there, share. He was talking about uh, Egyptian extremism in his country, which, by the way, has reached a fever pitch again just this last couple of weeks, as Brother uh, Sugdeo, thank you, as Brother Sugdeo reminded us. Thank you. Um, he said, you have to separate the spirit of Antichrist from the people. Oppose the spirit and love the people. See, that's, that's the attitude God wants us to have. Yes, we oppose the spirit of Antichrist, but we love the people. Several years ago, when Marsh and I were home uh, on our last home assignment from Ethiopia, when we went back to Ethiopia, our daughter, who was then 16, had her first uh, job, and she worked at a fast food restaurant, as many young people in our country do. Uh, got a, a summer job in a fast food restaurant, and uh, it was a place where most of the food was cr- cooked in a lot of grease, and uh, it was kind of a greasy, grungy place, and it fit the lifestyle of some of the people she worked with. They had greasy, grungy lifestyles, 
And one evening she was with our extended family talking about the greasy, grungy lifestyles of some of these people. And she talked about how um, several of the girls were sleeping around and uh, one of the guys was in a, a homosexual relationship. And, and one of our relatives said to her, Kara, how can you even stand to work there? And Kara said, yeah, but, but think what will happen when they come to know the Lord. I was so proud of her. Bingo. That's exactly what God is saying here. Think of what will happen when they come to know the Lord. See them as potential partiers. That's the first response. Get God's attitude. The second response is plan a blessing. Plan to be a blessing to those people who are a threat. If it's an individual, somebody that is in your life right now, think about what you can do to bless them. Maybe a visit. Maybe offering to help them in some work. Maybe taking them a meal, inviting them out to coffee. If they're in your workplace, maybe you could offer to pick up a, a job or two for them. Uh, if they're one of your neighbors, maybe you could take some food over sometime. Uh, think about a way that you specifically can be a blessing and reach out to them and show Jesus to them. For people who are abroad, let me encourage every one of us here in this room, pick one country or one area of the world, one religious group that particularly incenses you and decide you're going to pray for them. Pray for the Muslims of Iran. Pray for the Hindus of some of the states of North India. Find out information. And don't just pray for the Christians. Yes, pray for your suffering brothers and sisters. But pray for the persecutors. Pray that God will draw them to himself. Anybody here willing to pray that Osama bin Laden will come to Jesus Christ? Wow. Some of, I know some have been praying for that. What an apostle Paul he would turn out to be. They would probably try to kill him immediately. But boy, for every moment he was alive, what an incredible witness that would be. Praying for some of these who threaten us most, that they would come to Christ. And finally, think about those in our own society around here who are most despised by others in society. Because they're considered a threat, maybe an immigrant community, or others who are generally thought to be a threat and so are despised, and ask yourself, how can I reach out and be a blessing and show the love of Jesus? How can I invite them to God's eternal party? Get God's attitude and then plan a blessing, a blessing of prayer and a blessing of actions. You know what happened uh, in the aftermath of those attacks in Turkey? Suzanne, the wife of the slain German missionary, was given the chance to speak on television. One of the Turkish news commentators asked her if she wanted revenge against the five men who had killed her husband by brutally torturing him and then slitting his throat. She had these words to say on public television in Turkey. I have no thoughts of revenge in my heart toward the young men who killed my husband. As Jesus forgave those who killed him, I forgive these men because they did not know what they were doing. It was shown on national television and the next day a reporter returned uh, to her and uh, talked to her some more. The TV station manager was swamped with calls. People were incredulous at this kind of forgiveness. And the TV reporter, when he returned, said this, This woman has accomplished more in one sentence than a thousand missionaries could have accomplished in a thousand years. You see, she invited them to the party. That's what God calls for us to do as well. Back in year 2000, or just, I guess it was 2001, just before 9-11, there was a Christian couple working with a Christian humanitarian and aid 
organization in a Muslim republic in North Africa. This couple, whom we will call Ralph and Anne, had been there for several years. They were on a multi-year contract. They were there doing good to the people, for the people, and also displaying a Christian testimony. Then came 9-11, and this couple happened to be Americans, and when it was known what had happened, they consulted their organization on whether they should leave the country immediately. Were Americans at risk? And after some time of prayer and discussion, they decided they would stay and finish out their contract of work in that country in order to display the love of Christ as long as they could. Shortly after this, the wife, Anne, went to Europe for a short conference, and Ralph, the father, asked his 12-year-old daughter, 11-year-old daughter, excuse me, Amy, if she would like to go for a walk on the beach. This country bordered an ocean, and Amy said yes, she would. And so Ralph and Amy got into their land cruiser and drove to the edge of town and then drove out on the edge of the road, and then when they came to the sand, uh, since it was still some way from the ocean, Ralph got out of the car to let some air out of the tires so it would ride a little bit better on the sand. And while he was out of the car letting the air out, one of the local gentlemen from that country came walking along dressed in his Arabic robes. And he paused and he asked Ralph, he said, excuse me, sir, how are you? And Ralph greeted him, he stood up, he went through the long greetings and the two men greeted each other. And then the man turned to go. But as he turned, he said, uh, and what country do you come from, sir? And Ralph, who had gone back to working on the tires, looked up and said, well, I'm an American. He looked back down to the tires and then glanced back up to see that the man had pulled a handgun out of his robes and was aiming it at him. Ralph jumped up and made for the door, and as he did, he heard the man pull the trigger and the gun misfire. As he opened the door of the car, he heard the gun misfire again. He jumped in, he heard the gun misfire a third time. He pulled the door closed And he heard the gun, this time, go off. A bullet slammed into the headrest behind him. He started up the engine, slammed it into gear. A second bullet slammed into the headrest behind him. As he put the car into gear and began to roar off, he heard the gun go off for one more time, and his daughter Amy screamed. He looked over to see her shirt covering with blood, got on his cell phone, called the local hospital to tell them he was bringing in a gunshot victim. They reached the hospital pulled up the emergency room. They were there with a gurney to take Amy, and the doctor took one look at her chest, just covered with blood, and just shook his head. They wheeled her into the x-ray room to find the bullet, trying to stabilize her and stop the bleeding, which they were able to do. But but as they looked on the x-ray for the bullet, they could not find any bullet. The x-ray showed that the bullet had entered under her arm on this side, and then they were able to discover that the bullet had actually exited Off of this side, it had bounced off her sternum and exited without hitting any vital organs. They later found the bullet over on the right-hand side of the car. They were able to stabilize Amy. They medevaced her to Europe, where she enjoyed a full recovery. In the meantime, Ralph went to the local police, and they put out an all-points bulletin for the attacker. And amazingly, he was caught. He was caught and brought to trial for attempted murder, convicted of attempted murder very quickly, and put into prison for a long sentence for attempted murder. Amy came back from Europe. Of course, Anne, the mom, came back from Europe, and the family finished out their last few weeks of service in the country that they were in. But as they finished their their time of service, 
Amy expressed a desire to visit her assailant in prison and forgive him. So they went through all the red tape. The family went in to visit their assailant in prison. They were led into a secure room where the man was with them but separated from them. And they came up there and they began to speak to him. First of all, Ralph spoke and told the man that he forgave him for attacking him. Then Amy spoke. And she also, through her dad as a translator, told the man that she forgave him for attacking him. And they both just, she, he, they, he just nodded his head when they both spoke. They left him some towels and soap and magazines. And just before they left, Anne, the mom, also asked to speak. And turning to this man, whose name was Mohammed, she said this to him. Mr. Mohammed, you may not realize this, but when those, th- excuse me, I'm missing part of it. She said, you have heard that maybe some of the people in your country have said that God was at work and spared my husband. Because certainly, if those gunshots had hit my husband, he would have died. So God must have protected him. Mr. Muhammad, what you don't realize is when those three shots misfired and my husband's life was spared, God was not only protecting my husband, he was also protecting you. If those three shots had gone off, you would have been executed by now. For murder, you would not be in prison for attempted murder, but you would already be dead. Don't you realize that God is not just interested in my husband and daughter? He is interested in you, and he loves you as much as he loves them. The man began to cry, waved them out of the room. They went back to their house, spent the night, and the next day, a Mercedes-Benz pulled up in front of their house, and a very tastefully dressed Islamic lady got out and came to them, to their house and said, uh, I, was, uh, I was at the prison yesterday. You see, I am the older sister of the man who attacked you. And I visited him, and uh, he gave me this letter to give to you. So they, she gave him the letter, and it read this way in part. For many years, my life has been looking through an endless dark tunnel. But today, after your visit, I began to see a light at the end of that tunnel. In my education and reading, I have often heard the name and the term Christian love, but no one ever explained to me what it was. I just read the term. But today, I saw Christian love. And today, I began to live it. See, all those people that we don't like because they don't like us, God loves them. He wants to party with them forever. And He wants you and me to invite them to the party. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard word because I can think of some people that I would rather not be at the party. And that's wicked and that's sinful. And I confess it to you. Father, most of us probably have people who have threatened us in the past, have hurt us. Father, they're hurting our brothers and sisters abroad. But Father, I pray you would help us to pray for them, to seek to bless them, to have your attitude. And may we be the ones to invite them to your grand eternal party. In Jesus' name, amen.